0: We're going to continue our look at John chapter 3. We're going to read uh, verses 16 and 17, but before I read that, uh, let me uh, pray, and uh, we'll uh, jump in in just a minute. Pray with me. Lord, uh, we uh, rejoice today and we worship you because, as we've sung, you're omnipotent and you're wonderful. And uh, Lord, let it not be missed by us that you're wonderful because you love the world. And so we are so grateful for that today, and I pray that you would help us um, and change us uh, by uh, that truth, by giving us life, giving us faith, uh, and giving us assurance today of your love. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, so John three sixteen and 17, is in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Uh, So what are we to make of the world, right? When the people in the church talk about the world, we tend to think about it in a negative way. We talk about it as a bad thing. We talk about it as something that wars against us. We talk about it, and we, our posture towards it is oppositional. Whereas what we see in this text is that the, the, what Jesus wants Nicodemus to hear, and me and you to hear today, is that his posture towards the world is love. Uh, before I lose you, let me say this that one of the reasons why we lack power is because we don't love the world. In a sacrificial, in a way that reflects reality. Because the truth is, the world, as we read in this text, Is exactly who you and I once were. Fully. Uh, When John uses the word world, what he means is that which God created for his own that exists in rebellion and disobedience against him. You were that. And that still clings to every one of us. And except for the intervention of God, we would still be very much rooted and grounded in the world. Now, one of the things that I uh, am fully convinced of, and uh, Luke, you can put my notes up, is there are a million ways I could talk to you about the world and the sin and the depravity that is evidence in the world But I want to do it this morning by talking about something that every one of you at some time or another interacts with, and that's shopping carts. I know that's silly. I could talk about the horrendous technicolor sins that are uh, around in the world, but that would only tempt you to hate the world. Because you wouldn't see yourself as being affected by it. Did you know that there are dissertations written about people's behavior with shopping carts. I find that I interact with the world uh, and I find that I interact with the world in me often centered around shopping carts, for instance. You come into the grocery store, and because of the pandemic, what do you have to do? Well, you have to wipe off the shopping cart. Now, of course, the person behind you, their groceries are more important than yours, and therefore, they need you to get out of the way and hurry up, and they get irritated at you, and they bump your shopping cart. Well, you bumped my shopping cart, you violated my space, and I'm ready, to not be like Jesus, but to condemn you forever. Because you bumped my shopping cart and your groceries were deemed more important than mine. But it gets better in the parking lot. I was thinking about, you know, these great testimonies that we've had where we enter people and are having these great moments with Jesus. I have some pretty terrible moments with Jesus in the parking lot of my grocery store. One is I get so bummed, and by the way, there's a a website you can follow called CartNarks that has over 500,000 followers observing the behavior of people with shopping carts in grocery store parking lots because people are notorious for not putting their carts back They're notorious for not putting their carts back where they're supposed to be. And the grocery store that I go to, they have little sheds stationed throughout the parking lot where you're supposed to take the cart and you're supposed to sort the carts by size. There's a line for small carts and there's a line for big carts. It irritates me no end when people put the big carts in the small cart line. Wait, we're not done. cause, the world impinges on me, because unlike Jesus, I condemn everyone, and I am confirmed in my righteousness, because I put my cart in the right place. However, to maintain the condemnation of those who don't put their carts in the right place, I will never take someone else's cart and put it where it's supposed to be because I would just want it to hang out there and for everyone to see their depravity, right? What a silly example. But the truth is, the fact of the matter is, every single one of us, every one of us who's ever lived deserves condemnation. And that should catch us up short this morning. It certainly caught Nicodemus up short because Nicodemus came to Jesus thinking, oh, you know, you do these miracles and You have these interesting things to say, and Jesus basically says to him, Nicodemus, you are a dead man. And unless the breath of God blows into your heart and your soul, and unless you see me and receive me as I am, you will remain dead, a part of the world that is in active disobedience and rebellion against its creator. So, Part of the problem that we have with this, and one of the reasons why this catches, doesn't catch us up short, is the way we tend to think about Jesus' ministry is, is that we think that, that Jesus was, uh, you know, because the fact is Jesus was not sent into a neutral world where some of us become anti-Jesus and some of us become pro-Jesus. That's the way we tend to think about it that's the way we tend to think that it works it's not like that right because the fact is we are all under a curse because every one of us has sinned now we we tend to minimize that sin and we tend to look at it in a in a small way but i was struck this week in my friday morning group we're doing an in-depth study of romans and One of the things that you see about that is inherent in every one of us, inherent in the world, is the suppression of the knowledge of God that that is all around us because we can't stand the thought that we are accountable to someone for who we are and how we behave. And so we suppress that. Jesus sees that, and that is precisely the world that Jesus loves. that is precisely the world that Jesus comes, as we read here, to save. Because that persistent state of rebellion against God is what Jesus says in this text is perishing. We are perishing. We are disappearing. We are dying dead unless God intervenes on our behalf. Next slide. So what we we need to understand about this is is that Jesus came not to make neutral people into pro-Jesus people, but to make guilty people non-guilty, condemned people not condemned, and to make dead people eternally alive. God does not owe anybody acquittal or life. That Jesus came to offer it and that some accept it is all undeserved grace. So what Jesus is getting at in this text and in his interaction with Nicodemus is that the point, the issue for every single one of us is Jesus. Now, let me, let me be clear about this again. You know, the one of the things that happens to us consistently is, we are quick to see uh, the sin of others and we are quick to point out and to condemn, really, the depravity that we see all around us. And it's real. And it's dark. And it's frightening. But rather than take the posture of Jesus Christ, that Jesus actually takes those people and makes them alive, we tend to take the posture of hopelessness and ironically, though faith is the link that links us to the goodness of God, unbelief. Because we believe that it's so dark, Jesus can't reach into that darkness. I know that about myself. I uh, one of, the things, one of the things I did this year that I'm still processing was I led the pastors and directors through a study of, a, of humility. And it's such a great book. We, we had such great discussions. It, it brought about some spiritual renewal. But not only did it bring about some great spiritual renewal, you know what it did for me? It heightened my gift of discernment. because I became so adept, so gifted, so much better at identifying pride in all of you. (laughs) I'm like, man, this book is so great. I just had this interaction with somebody and I can just see their pride just leaking out all over the place. Thank you, God, for showing me this. This is so awesome. God was good to have an encounter with me where he's like, yeah, you know, only a prideful man sees it in somebody else. Right? Yeah. So that's actually a ministry of mercy to each of us to remind us in our posture toward the world that yes, the world is dead, dying, perishing. But Jesus came not to condemn, but to atone and to save. And that's our hope, right? So what we have to say about this is, is so what Jesus wants us to see is how we receive him, how Nicodemus receives him, is the real issue. Because what Jesus says in the text is that those who escape condemnation are those who believe. Okay, so what does that mean? Next slide, Luke. So believing then is the vital link between you and the love of God. That is how we, ex- we, we uh, uh, experience that in our lives. But the thing that you have to see about this is, is that the way we tend to think about believing is, is that believing is, is somehow or other something that we must generate. When in fact, Believing is more about receiving in a state of being than it is simply an assent to a set of facts. It is assent to a set of facts, but it is more than that because it has to do with how we are connected to, how we view, and how we receive. A passive act, receiving— how we receive what it is that Jesus uh, uh, brings to us, right? So it's an ongoing condition. That's why Jesus uh, means here when he says that God lo- that, that uh, whoever believes in him, it is something, and so the, the fact is, the way you may think about that is, I would guess that for many of us throughout our week, throughout our days, throughout our hours, throughout our minutes, there are plenty of times where you and I act and behave in such a way that it doesn't look like we believe when we're overwhelmed with hopelessness, when we're overwhelmed with fear, when we're overwhelmed with hardness, when we're overwhelmed with impatience, when we're overwhelmed with hatred, disdain, despair. Those are the moments, right, where it would look like we are not believing. So, believing is not something that we do so much in a moment by moment thing, but it is a state of being of receiving from Jesus what it is that he has done for us, right? So, but to receive Jesus, that means you take him as he is. And that is one of the challenges that we often experience, right? Because the truth is, we all have a bobblehead Jesus. Right And the bobblehead Jesus is a caricature of jesus right it's it's we make Jesus into something that we're comfortable with. We make Jesus into someone who uh, exists for our happiness and for our fulfillment and uh, to give us a better marriage and to give us a better career and to give us a better life and to give us all of those things and while certainly that's the Those things are are worth thinking about and thinking about. The fact is what Jesus gives us is his life for ours so that we who were dead by his death may become alive. That we might be changed and that our eternal destiny might, the trajectory of our lives is completely redone, right? Now, it's important that we believe that we that we see this Jesus for who he is but don't make the mistake that we often make is that believing is somehow our job in the sense that God does this now it's up to me to believe it dead people don't believe anything right so so the the truth of the matter is Our own faith, our own receiving of this is something that we can't generate on our own, that God must do it in us. Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In other words, what we have to see about this is, and what is so rich and so reassuring to us today is that that your faith is certainly going to wax and wane. Your faith, your grip on this grace that God has for you is going to wax and wane. But God's grip on you never waxes or wanes. God's heart for you never turns cold. God's uh, love for you never burns down. His commitment, his covenant, his faith based on his character is always passionate towards you, right? And so even when we squirm against that, even when we act as if he doesn't exist, even when we act as if we are our own Lords, he still is pursuing us. And his, his love, never grows cold because he's the one who drew us and if he's the one who drew us and he is the one who gave us the gift of faith, we can rest assured today, praise God, that we can't lose it because he gave it to us. God doesn't take back his gifts. Uh, He is profoundly faithful, determined, committed to us right and so he does the work for us that we could never do ourselves by drawing us by making this this reality that we are sinners that we are a part of the world living in rebellion against God and he makes then uh, his grace his mercy attractive so that it draws us to him and gives us life next slide but you see, the thing that we have to see about this and what, what, what has to motivate us and, and change us and reorient us is that that is where, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and he speaks to you and I today, is we have a place to be assured. That we have a place to rest in, uh, uh, in the work of God for us even when our faith is weak. Because if if how you're doing with God or how God is doing with you is dependent upon how you're believing or the quality of your faith, then in the chain of redemption, the link that links you to God, you're the weakest link and you will break. But if God made the the chain in and through the work of Jesus Christ, you can rest in the knowledge that that chain will never break. Calvin says this, but it is not yet clear enough why and how faith bestows life on us. How does that happen? Whether it is because Christ regenerates us by his spirit so the righteousness of God may live and flourish in us, what a rich thing. Or because cleansed by his blood, we are accounted righteous before God by a free pardon. It is indeed certain that these two aspects are always joined together. But since we are concerned now with assurance of salvation, the central idea is that we live because God freely loves us by not counting our sins against us. That's why sacrifice, the giving of the only begotten Son, is expressly mentioned by which the curse and death are destroyed as well as sins. This teaches us that in Christ we recover the life we lack in ourselves. And here's the kicker for me. For in this wretched state of humanity, redemption precedes salvation. In other words, God is for you when you're dead. God is for you when you are in the world. God is for you and acting on your behalf when you are perishing. God is for you when you hate him by your callous disregard of your creator's love. Let me make a very practical point of this to you, for you today, for us to, to help us understand how this matters with what you do tomorrow morning when you get up. Because this is the deal. Think of the people, persons, that you think are so dark, so broken that they're hopeless. They may be in this room with you, right? Think of those people, the worst people, the people that uh, your preferred news provider villainizes before your eyes every single moment of every single day. Those people. The others. Right? And you think about them, and you think, how in the world could I have a posture like Jesus's posture of love for those people? They don't deserve it. They're the worst. Yes, maybe. Well, my friends, that is unbelief. And the reason why I know that is unbelief, because you believe. And if you believe, you, even you, Why would you think it's hopeless for that person, that one, to believe? You are here today. You are under the preaching of the gospel. You hear the word that Jesus loves the world, and you respond to that. Then, how would it be that he could not give life to that dead person that you think is absolutely hopeless. You see, if grace can reach you, if grace can change you, if it can change me, then no one is beyond the pale of the love of God in Jesus Christ. So you can see how we lack power when the world thinks that the church's only posture is a posture of condemnation. It doesn't mean we don't identify sin as sin, but what it means is that if we have been loved and we have been drawn, then there's every reason to hope and every reason to love, and every reason to sacrifice, and every reason to die to ourselves for the sake of the world. You see, as we come to the Lord's table today, uh, that is the thing that we recognize. That is the thing uh, that we latch onto because God has latched on to us. You see, when we read these words, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. The context of this meal that we eat, the context of this sacrament that we celebrate, is the actual betrayal of the only true person who ever lived. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The posture that we have towards the world is the cross of Christ. Paul said that his message was Christ and him crucified. That's our posture. That's our hope. That's our assurance in the darkness of the world. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Look at yourself, but don't look so much at your behavior, but look at the motivation of your heart. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The worst misapplication of that text I ever heard in my life. I was at a church that was going through a difficult time and the pastor got up and he read this text as they were getting ready to eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ as they were ready to proclaim the Lord's death for their sins. And he said, I'm going to ask the ushers to get ready because some of you might fall over dead this morning as a result of this. I thought, Somebody needs to get up on the stage because it might be you. Mm. Now, the serious business that we see here and the thing that we, that we, we realize about this is, is that all of us come to the table unworthy of the grace of God, the issue for us is, do we see our sin for what it is, see Jesus' sacrifice for what it is, and find that sin repugnant? That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But then we are judged by the, when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Even Jesus' discipline is to prevent you from perishing. Let's confess our sins together. Almighty God, your grace removes my burdens and heaps them on your son, made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for me. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that I might be clothed. Wounded, that I might be healed. Thirsty, that I might drink. Tormented, that I might be comforted. Made ashamed, that I might inherit glory. Experienced reproach, that I might receive welcome. Closed his eyes in death, that I might forever live. O Father, who did not spare your only Son, that you might spare me, all this your love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore you with my words and my life. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Amen." Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. Our hope today is in a crucified Savior. Our hope today is is his life for ours, his death for ours. That is what we trust, and that is what we hope, and that is what we celebrate when we eat this bread and we drink this cup. God gives you something you can hold in your hand and see and taste and smell as evidences to you that Jesus Christ really lived, really died, really rose again, that your sin is real, but his sacrifice is greater. That's our hope. If, if your hope today is in the work of Jesus Christ for you, you have rested in that, you have received that, and you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, he welcomes you. He extends, throws open uh, his arms to embrace you, to greet you, and to pull out a chair for you at his table so that you can enjoy fully all the things that Jesus lived and died to give you. Uh, As the elders come down front to assist me, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine. The inner rings are grape juice. Underneath uh, each cup is a tiny gluten-free wafer. Um, If you're unable to come down front, raise your hand and we'll see to it that you get served. Once everyone has been served, we will uh, eat and drink uh, the elements together.